Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Blessed are you, O Christ, our God, who have filled the fishermen with wisdom by sending down the Holy Spirit upon them, and who through them have caught in your net the whole world, O lover of mankind, glory to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening received his doctorate in philosophy from Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. I think all of those topics he's spoken for us here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. He is a third-order lay Dominican and currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. Dr. Cutterback is an avid gardener, hunter, and lives with his wife and six, six children. Uh, in the sh you always have to check in Front Royal if there's been another birth in the last three months. In the Shenandoah Valley, Dr. Cutterback has come to the Institute numerous times to speak on various philosophical topics, and we are glad to have him back. Please join me in welcoming my dear friend, Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you very much. I'll give you a full hour. Can I count you down from right now? Okay. Um, okay. First, I saw no mic, and I realized it's, it's on my person. <laughs> I'm all wired. Well, it's great to be here. Just a little while ago, my wife was cutting my hair, and my youngest daughter was sitting on the stairs looking down on us. We were trying to teach our children about the different gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so my daughter very earnestly looked at my wife and said, Mama, do you have the gift of cutting hair? I'm quite sure she said that because my wife was cutting hair off of my head and there was still something left. I'm sure that's why she thought it was a, a spiritual gift. We have something amazingly exciting to talk about tonight. This, this is really my favorite topic to speak on. And I hope you'll bear with me. I'm going to be a little bit philosophical. I'm going to make a few distinctions for you. But the main truth before us is something that is so astonishing and so at the heart of our lives that I think that it will be a grace for us to look at it here together. It's, it's frankly so important. Sometimes I wonder, why don't we hear more about this? But then I think, maybe we have been hearing about this, but we just haven't been listening. And the point particularly is that at the heart of the human vocation, at the heart of it, 
is to live in community with other persons. That is the main truth that we're going to look at together, that the heart of the human vocation is to live in community with other persons. Blessed John Paul II loved to emphasize that man's being created in the image and likeness of God does not simply belong to us as individual persons. Our being an image of God refers also to our ability to live in communion with others. If you'd be so kind as to look at the first quotation. I've been rereading recently his letter to families, which I believe is 1994. It is an astounding document. Anyone who is part of a family, I cannot recommend it to you enough. Quote, the Second Vatican Council, in speaking of the likeness of God, uses extremely significant terms. It refers not only to the divine image and likeness which every human being as such already possesses, but also and primarily to, here we quote Vatican II, a certain similarity between the union of the divine persons and the union of God's children in truth and love. This rich and meaningful formulation, he goes on, first of all confirms what is central to the identity of every man and every woman. This identity consists in the capacity to live in truth and love. Now that's his italics there, this capacity to live in truth and love. That is really referring to the capacity to live in community. When he says to live in truth and love, that refers to our capacity to live in community. So at the heart of our being made in the image and likeness of God is not simply that we have rationality and free will, which is of course central, but Pope John Paul II is pointing out also, and even seems to indicate primarily, we are made in the image and likeness of God in this ability to live in community with other persons as a reflection of the life of the divine Holy Trinity itself. Our vocation is to give ourselves to others, then, I suggest, in a context where a community of persons has a common good that is both greater than our private good and is our own greater good. I'm going to say that again. Our vocation is to give ourselves to others in a context where a community of persons has a common good that is both greater than our private good and is our own greater good. We're going to go on now and make some distinctions to help you understand that. But this beautiful notion of there is a common good of communities that we belong to that's greater than any private good we can have, but at the same time is also the greatest good for which we are made. Namely, this good we have as participating in a common good in a community of persons. Now, right now, that sounds a little bit abstract and not quite as exciting as I seem to have been indicating earlier. I ask you to bear with me. I'm going to make a couple of distinctions, and I hope that we'll be able to see just how exciting this is. So a little primer on some terminology here, community and common good. The word community, of course, is used in a number of different ways. I'm going to use it here in a general way, but at the same time, a rather specific, extremely important one to try to verify this principle that I've just suggested. 
A community is a kind of unity. Note in the name, community. A community is a kind of one thing. So to understand what we mean by community, we need to look at what different ways there are of being one thing. Well, there are two different kinds of unities out there. Now, this is the most philosophical I'm going to be, but again, bear with me. As I say to my students, don't, just because you don't understand it the first time I say it, don't start to look around at other things. Don't give up yet. Stay with me, and I think we'll get it. There's two kinds of unity, substantial unities and unities of order. Substantial unities and unities of order. These are two kinds of unities, two ways of something being one. What we mean by substantial unity is very simple. It's one substance. So a substance is a person, a tree, an animal, is a substance. That is one thing. The most obvious instance of things that are one are one person, one tree, one birdie. Those are substantial unities. All the term substantial means there's that thing is a substance. Everyone knows a substance is one. Here I am, I'm one, a child is one, a tree is one, a birdie is one. Okay, that's substantial unities, that's simple. The other kind of unity is a unity of order. This is where something's one, but it's not a substance. There's going to be a unity here, but it's not just one substance, but there's still a unity. This is what philosophically we call a unity of order. It's a unity between more than one substance, where these several substances are unified made one, by having some relation to one another. An example, a forest. A forest is one. I walked through the forest. Did you walk through two forests? No, I walked through one forest. It's one, but it's not one substance. There's a whole bunch of trees. There's a lot of birdies in there. But there's still a certain unity to it such that you call it one forest. A pile of stones is one. How many piles of stones were there? There was one pile of stones. It has a certain unity where there are several substances, but they are all related to one another in some way. A pile is a very simple kind of unity. It is one simply because they're all in the same place. So they are all related by being in the same place. A business is a unity. I belong to a business. Do I belong in more than one business? No, it's one business. There's many people in it but it's one business because we all are related in some way. A family is one. A family is not several. A family is one. It is not a substantial unity. I and my wife are not a substantial unity. We are two substances, but we are one because we have a very important relationship with one another. Critical to see here is there are things that can be unities that are not one substance and it is what we call a unity of order. Does this make sense? Now, the whole show is there are different levels of unity of order, so we need to look a little bit more closely. Some are not so important, and some are where the whole show is. Piles of stones are unities of order, but they're not terribly important. A pile of stones, a crowd of people has a certain unity but it's just because they happen to be in the same place. Now I'm going to go to two different higher kinds of unity, and I'm going to use important terms here. Partnership and community. A partnership is a unity, and a community is a unity. 
And what we must see, ladies and gentlemen, is the difference between a partnership and a community. And we can do this together. We start with partnership. A partnership is, well, let me give you first an example. A business corporation is a great example of a partnership. It is a kind of unity of order. Again, obviously it's not a substantial unity. But what other characteristics can we look at here? Resources are pooled for some shared utility. Resources are pooled together in this business corporation for the sake of some utility, some usefulness. But the key thing that I'm going to focus your attention immediately on here is this. The end or goal of a business corporation most fundamentally is some private yield. In other words, some yield that comes to the individuals that have come together in this business corporation. This can be seen especially in the fact that partners can, we say, cash out of a partnership. If you are in a business corporation, you can simply cash out and you can take with you, in a sense, what you had gotten in for. You can take resources with you, leave. You are now cashed out of this partnership. I now go on to community. We're going to see there's different kinds of community, but community is the unity of order that we're going to be particularly interested in. I give you a definition. Two or more persons sharing in a common good that cannot be cashed out. Two or more persons sharing in a common good that cannot be cashed out. A couple characteristics of what I'm calling community. Community has a common end. All those substances or persons that are in this community have some good that is achieved as a whole. There's some shared end or goal that is achieved by these people together in this community. So there's a common end. The other key characteristic is that there are common actions unto that end. Indeed, often those common actions can actually constitute the common flourishing of this community. There are things that they do together that are precisely what this community, what this unity is all about. And the key thing to see here is that you cannot cash out and take with you your part of a community. And that is something I think we very often fail to understand about this most important kind of unity that we can have with other human persons. Let's immediately go to the most important natural example of this, and that is the family. Here is a true community. And it is one thing, using thing in a broad sense. A family is one thing. It is a unity, it is a unity of orders, not one substance. It is several substances that are one by a relation they have to one another. But note how it is different from a partnership. They share a common end that is precisely the good life that they seek together and share together and literally live together. And they have common actions unto this end. Their common actions actually constitute 
their common flourishing. Think of a family. Think, for instance, of the common action of work. A family that works together is literally living out its unity. It is in this action expressing who and what is. This is a shared reality that cannot be cast out. Look at shared prayer. The family is praying. This is family prayer. It's not just this individual praying and this individual praying and this individual praying. It is a family that is praying. It is a family that is happy. It is a family that flourishes. Note what is going on here, this amazing common good that is only in what it does together. And it is simultaneously everyone's. But no one can take it away. A child who has grown up can, this is a subtle point, I think very important, and from a beautiful family, a child who has been well-formed, that child never cashes out. He or she might leave and take with him or her the amazing formation he has been given or she has been given, but it's not checking out of the common good. Nay, it's extending that same common good to new horizons. You don't check out of a family. You can take much with you as children go forth, but there is a good of that family that never can go away. My former professor, Russell Hittinger, has a great illustration to help understand these different kinds of unity of order, and I'm going to take that from him and give him credit for it. Picture a group of people who are standing at a credit union. They're standing in line at the credit union. And there's going to be three levels of unity that I'd like you to see that those people in that line at the credit union can have with one another. First of all, they're all parts of the line, or the queue, as the English would say, just to make sure the word line can be ambiguous. They are all parts of the queue. It's one queue. It has a certain unity to it. But that's a very low-level unity. That's kind of like being a pile of stones. It, it doesn't make you be real close in any human way. Well, I, I feel so close to that person. We were in a queue together. <laughs> right, well, you, you, we're close spatially. It is one queue, and you are parts of that one queue. Nothing terribly exciting. It is what it is. The second, they all also, let's assume, are partners in the credit union. Now, that's a new level of sociality there. That's a new relatedness. We are all members of a partnership that is the credit union. Oh, okay. I mean, this is something now we share, something richer than happening to be in the same place. And that's something that we achieve a certain common utility together. There's a reason we come together and join this credit union. We have a certain unity being in this same credit union together. But no, the credit union is not a community. There are not shared 
actions that constitute the flourishing of the credit union. There are certain important things that are done together, but note also you can indeed cash out of a credit union and say goodbye. But then these others also are, in this, our example, let's just say that they all belong to St. Leo's Parish. Ah, now we have a whole new level of sociality. They are members of a parish together. A parish, ladies and gentlemen, at least can and should be a community in the real sense of that term. That is something that is a new level where there is a genuine common good of a parish that they share in together. You, of course, can leave a parish, but note how you can't take with you what you had when you were in it. The commonality of being members of a parish, a true community, is not something that can be cashed out. There's a common end, there's a common flourishing that is constituted through shared actions. Think of the beautiful shared actions, by the way, that constitute the flourishing of a parish. We all are together, for instance, obviously the height, together at Mass. There they are, praying together, priests at the front with the hands of Christ, raising Christ and offering to the Father. Here we are as one, as a parish community, as a cell of a broader church, doing a common action unto a common end. This is at a whole new level, again, of a shared life. Do you see how that was three levels of unities of order? How are we doing on that distinction? I circle back to the family quickly and just want to say, consider again that marriage itself, ladies and gentlemen, even without children, is a true community. Spouses share a common end, namely the good life they're called to live together, and in any case, their openness to new life. They have common actions through which they achieve it, and there is no cashing out of a marriage. Marriages can at times end up not having been, right? but if a marriage is, there is no such thing as cashing out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, think what human life would be without those realities called communities, where we are part of something much greater than ourselves, to which we give ourselves and in which we give ourselves to other persons in which we become what we are called to be. These things are called communities. And it is this key truth, I suggest to you, is what is really the great divide. Our society does not understand what a community is. It really doesn't have any notion, I dare say, of a unity among human persons that transcends what we have called a partnership. It's never really anything that transcends us to which we unselfishly give ourselves 
and in which we become more than we could ever be by ourselves in a real sense. It is about the community and not about me. Contemporary society does not understand that. Indeed, the great rival theories of the last 150 years, neither one of them gets it. Socialism and liberal individualism, neither one of them understand the things that we've just talked about. Neither socialism, one extreme, or liberal individualism, the other extreme, understands what real community is like. Neither grasps there is a true common good along the lines that we've just been talking about that transcends the private good of individuals and is at the same time the greater good of those individuals. I'd just like to make a quick side comment here. I think a danger for, may I say, well, I was going to say us. I'll say a danger for me as I would call myself often a conservative. I think a danger that conservatives have is in reaction to socialism as well as in reaction to the obvious great evils of an over-involved big government. We very often find ourselves moving in the direction of pulling the liberal individualism lever. For goodness sake, save us from the socialists, save us from big government, and we go the liberal individualist route as though just leave me alone and I'll be able to do what I'm supposed to do. Just, just let me live according to my own lights and everything's going to be all right. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the Christian answer. Socialism is very wrong and liberal individualism is very wrong and we have got to find the way to understand what true community is supposed to be like. It is not about just give me my freedom and my rights and everything's going to be all right. Because I dare say, it ain't. Human persons can look at one another in various contexts and say, your good is my good. And our good is my greatest good. Socialists don't understand that. Liberal individualists do not understand that. And this is achieved to move forward by living in shared knowledge and love in a community, as we've just been talking about. And look again at the opening quotation from Blessed John Paul II. He said that identity that's central to every man and woman, this identity consists in the capacity to live in truth and in love. Real community, the most important kind of unity that can be had between persons, is lived at a spiritual level where there is a unity in knowledge, in truth, and in love. Would you be so kind as to look now at the second quotation? You might not have heard of this 20th century philosopher, a French expatriate who came and taught at the University of Notre Dame. His name is Yves Simon. This quotation is from a slightly technical context but I think that you'll be able to see, given the things we just talked about together, what he's saying, and I think you're going to see the real zing in his conclusion here. He was in the context here making the distinction that I've made, we've made together, between community and partnership. And listen to what he says. Communion implies, in addition to imminent acts relative to the same object, 
My knowing that the others know and desire the same object and want it to be affected by the action of our community. Communions in imminent actions make up the most profound parts of social reality. Theirs is a world of peace where ennui, boredom, is impossible and where death itself can be sweet. It makes me think of those who have experienced this in the military. In certain military contexts, this great truth becomes very apparent of what a real community can be like, where there is one good that can be shared by a very small number of men together. And history has borne this out many times, where death itself can be sweet, where someone saw very clearly, this is about us, this is not about me. And they find completion, a happiness unknown in doing that. Where death itself can be sweet, there alone the individual is freed from solitude and anxiety. Mere partnership, on the other hand, does not do anything to put an end to the solitude of the partners. They may be better off as a result of their contract, but their contract will not relieve their lonesomeness. There is not between them any communion in an imminent action. It may be, here, here's the zinger, it may be that in our time, he was writing 50 years ago, it may be that in our time, mere partnership plays too great a role in the life of men at work. According to certain criticisms, this would be a major cause of the anxiety prevalent in our societies. Do you see what he's suggesting? He's referring particularly to men there as men at work. There are too many of us, he is suggesting, who spend the most of our lives in unities of order that are not real communities and we picture sociality through that model. The business partnership as though that is the main way that people come together and share something together. It is to share something, but we wouldn't ever picture ourselves giving our life for a partnership. You very easily, I dare say, can see yourself giving your life for a spouse, for your parish, for your nation, for the other men in this regiment. In these type of communities, he's saying, the boredom, the loneliness is not there. For it's in these that we find the communion with persons for which we were created. Two key takeaway points from this rather philosophical section of our presentation. Two key takeaway points. One, it is precisely in and by belonging to true communities that human persons reach their greatest perfection and happiness. Again, it's precisely in and by belonging to true communities, using that term as we've used it together here, that human persons reach their greatest perfection and happiness as persons. Ladies and gentlemen, this is absolutely foundational in the Christian worldview. How do I live as a member or a part of a whole community? This should be the foundational focus of our attention. And the family is always an easy example to go to. 
I as a man, I suggest, should be thinking, how can I be a better part of this marriage, of this family, that is fundamental to my identity that I serve and be a part of for its sake. And in being a part of it for its sake, I find myself. Second conclusion, here again the echo of why socialism on the one side and liberal individualism on the other side both miss the true dignity of the communities that we're talking about here. The most important goods and actions that are shared by communities are spiritual goods and actions. The most important goods and actions that are shared by communities are spiritual goods and actions. So those who deny or shortchange the spiritual side of man can never really understand or live in true communion with other persons. I'm going to say that again because it's critical. Those who deny or shortchange the spiritual side of man can never really understand or live in true communion with other persons. Communism was doomed to failure from the start if for no other reason than this, it was fundamentally materialist. And being joined in material pursuits never, ever satisfies a human person. It does not render communion between them. Similarly, with business associations, not that there's no spiritual side to it, but it's fundamentally, in any case, to the extent that it fundamentally focuses on the material. Liberal individualism tends to focus on the material side of man. To that extent, it never understands what really brings together real communities. Ladies and gentlemen, isn't that the reason that so few can understand how something like a simple, materially poor family can be shockingly happy? Or for that matter, a little village in the mountains of Mexico where they struggle to no end. They have a wealth in the community, what they share with the others, that fills them in their center. My plan from here is now a quick overview of the political realm for Christians and then a couple practical suggestions that will be unconscionably brief, but I will ask for your... That was too strong a word, unconscionably. Um, <laughs> I should have saved that for a better context. In any case, it's going to be too brief, but here we go. Um, quick overview of the political realm. We belong, we Christians, we belong to a civil society and to the church. I'm going to be making a couple references to other quotations on the sheet, so just be ready to take a peek with me here, and we can look at them together. First of all, very quick philosophical distinction here that you need to know in order to understand this great quotation I'm about to read you from Pope Pius XI. There are two kinds of societies out there, two kinds of societies. Society is functionally another name for community, but society is often the term used. It's about to be the term used by Pope Pius XI, so I'm just going to associate the term society with the term community that we've been using. All right? There's two kinds of societies, complete ones and incomplete ones. Don't worry, I'm not going to go too far with this. Very simply, a complete society, also sometimes called a perfect society, 
is a society that has in itself all its means to achieve its end. Has in itself all the means to achieve its end. That's called a complete society. Incomplete or imperfect society is one that does not. Does not have in itself all the means to achieve its end. So, I'm about to look at a quotation where Pius XI is going to explain. We Christians belong fundamentally to two complete societies. One is the civil society or state to which we belong, and the other is the church. And it's critical that we understand that we belong to both. Quotation number three. I hope, given our little primer together, you're going to really appreciate this key text here from our Catholic social teaching, and you'll see the terminology he's going to use here is what we've already been using. There are three necessary societies. You could use the word community. He means by society there what we have defined as a community that has a common good to it. There are three necessary societies distinct from one another and yet harmoniously combined by God into which man is born. Two, namely the family and civil society, belong to the natural order. The third, the church, to the supernatural order. So we all belong to a family, the church, and civil society. In the first place comes the family, instituted directly by God for its peculiar purpose, the generation and formation of offspring. For this reason, it has priority of nature and therefore of rights over civil society. But this is a very important point, ladies and gentlemen, not to be missed. Nevertheless, the family is an imperfect or incomplete society, since it has not in itself all the means for its own complete development. Whereas civil society is a perfect society, having in itself all the means for its peculiar end which is the temporal well-being of the community. And so in this respect, that is, in view of the common good, it has preeminence over the family, which finds its own suitable temporal perfection in civil society. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to be able to go too deeply into political theory, but it is important to see this, and frankly, it can be difficult for us given the civil society that we live in. So be prepared to brace yourself, but we have to look with eyes to see here. We are parts of a civil society. This is the way God has designed human nature. The human beings come to their fulfillment, their natural fulfillment, by being a part of a civil society in which alone we can really achieve the human good. Families are only a part of that. Families are not sufficient to bring us to human flourishing. There needs to be a broader community. Aristotle was particularly eloquent on this point. This does no disservice to the family. But what it shows is that the human flourishing for which we are made is so great, the family alone is not sufficient unto that end. Any parents like me who are now dealing with teenagers who very naturally find themselves even I was going to, even in a great family, um, I, I, I set that up wrong. <laughs> even if a teenager happens to have a great family, said teenager will find him or herself looking outward because their horizon must be broader than that family. The civil society is the broader community to which we belong, in which our fuller flourishing can and should happen. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been teaching this for a number of years, and I say it to you right off the bat, it's hard for us to think in these terms because of the civil society that we belong to. But it's important for us, nonetheless, to understand the way things can and should be. 
So here is Pope Pius XI really just echoing the great philosopher Aristotle and saying the civil society is that in which there can be the education and the culture and all those other aspects that a family alone could never achieve. Therein should full human flourishing come to be what it is in this community that is that broad. Indeed, ladies and gentlemen, is this not also witnessed to by the fact that it's always been understood that especially young men should be willing, when necessary, to join the military and be willing to give their lives for the nation. You could think of any number of examples, but you think, think of the best... My mind goes to the highlands of Scotland in the 1700s when Bonnie Prince Charlie comes back and there'd be the best, most pious father you could have, a Scotsman standing there with his family, all his children around him. And someone walks through the door and says, the Bonnie Prince has landed. We need to go support him. And dad turns, he looks at his wife and he looks at his children and he says, I love you more than I can tell you. And he takes a sword from the wall and he leaves. And he probably never comes back. Life is bigger than the family. Otherwise, that man wouldn't have left. There's a broader society to which we owe more than we have. We belong to complete societies. We are under two authorities, namely the church and civil society. I never finished that quotation from Pius XI. The third society into which man is born when through baptism he reaches the divine life of grace, again the last paragraph of quotation three, is the church, a society, a community of the supernatural order and of universal extent, a perfect society because it has in itself all the means required for its end, which is the eternal salvation of mankind. Hence it's supreme in its own domain. So we are born into two societies that are called complete ones. One, the natural level, civil society, and the supernatural society of the church. Both of which, what a joy. It, it, it's like this abundance of gifts from God. We belong to these several communities. A family, which has a good greater than my own, which is so beautiful to be a part of, something greater than myself. And then even more, in a sense, I belong to this broader nation, these people who are in some sense mine, whose lot I cast mine with, that we pursue the good life together, for better or for worse. And then even more, a supernatural society that only has its beginnings here and one day will find its fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem, which is a city, where we will there have the ultimate fulfillment of being a member of a community. But right now in this life, we have this beautiful, and as you said, should be a harmonious belonging to several. Sometimes a little bit of tension, particularly in our society, there's a lot of tension, and that is even traumatic. We're not going to be able to address that completely, but we'll give a couple suggestions on that. Let's look at the fourth quotation from Leo XIII. The Almighty has, therefore, has given the charge of the human race to two powers, the ecclesiastical and the civil, the one being set over divine and the other over human things. Each in its own kind is supreme. Each has fixed limits within which it is contained, limits which are defined by the nature and special order of the province of each, so that there is, we may say, an orbit traced out within which the action of each is brought into play by its own native right. Note the balance here. 
There are two authorities, that's a unique kind of authority that is had called a government that is over a complete society. No, parents are not called a government. They have a kind of authority, but they don't pass laws. This is fundamental legal theory going back to St. Thomas Aquinas and even back then to Aristotle. It's only in a complete society where you have that amazingly noble thing called law. There are laws in our ecclesial society, the church, and there are laws in civil society. Those laws should be for our good. In the church, they always are. In civil society, it can be perverted. But right now we're talking about fundamentally, we have to understand the structure of how things can and should be. And then we can talk about what we do when things are not as they should. Look at the fifth quotation from Pius XI. God has likewise destined man for civil society according to the dictates of his very nature. In the plan of the creator, society is a natural means which man can and must use to reach his destined end. The reason I put that there is I, I think it's important that we emphasize, ladies and gentlemen, in this looking at the common good and how a Catholic should live in the social order. It is part of God's plan that we live as a member of a civil society. There can even be things dramatically wrong with it, and that's going to require our attention, and it might be extremely difficult, but we must not find ourselves retreating into, hey, you know, this place has big problems. You know, I'm a member of the church, and then me, my family, we just kind of go and do our own thing. That's just not the way God designed it. We are called to be members of a civil society, and that has consequences, even if they seem to be painful. I put in the quotation number six, just by the way, to point out, though, though we belong to two complete societies, there is a hierarchy. Leela thirteenth, and just as the end at which the church aims is by far the noblest of ends, so is its authority the most exalted of all authority nor can it be looked upon as inferior to the civil power or in any manner dependent upon it. That doesn't nullify that civil society has its own key role, but there always is a kind of primacy of the authority of the church as being a society that has the higher ends, namely our supernatural end. I now turn for just a few practical suggestions, a few key areas we can look at regarding how can we live in the civil society in which we live in, ladies and gentlemen? I've now finished the kind of more difficult theoretical part. I'm going to end by just making a few suggestions based upon these things. What are some things that we might want to think about as regards how, bearing these things in mind, we can try to live in the civil society that we are? First, a comment about political involvement. All right, so we've just talked about how it's by God's plan that we belong to a civil society that is a complete society whose flourishing should be seen as greater than our own individual good. We've got to bear these things in mind, but there's a gorilla in the living room here. What do we do when the civil society to which we belong has serious, serious problems? Most of all, those reflected in a communal rejection, communal rejection of fundamental aspects of the moral order. We find ourselves in an extremely difficult situation. Why do I say communal? It doesn't mean everybody, but when the authority 
that is duly elected, etc., violates the natural moral order in fundamental ways, we are in, let it suffice to say, an extremely serious situation that calls for serious action, the specifics of which are absolutely going to be beyond us. But I want to say, first of all, we have got to bear in mind the seriousness of it. I suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that we take a deep breath, we commit ourselves to prayer and say, we are still members of this civil society. We will be involved in it with a Catholic mind in a Catholic heart. And we will always have something critical to give and to receive by being a member of the civil society to which we belong. We must be prepared to be different and to be signs of contradiction. I dare say if we fit in in this society, something has gone very wrong. But that doesn't mean that we're not still parts of it. Again, a dramatic, dramatic situation. I'm going to give you a quotation from Aristotle here in a few minutes to wrap things up. That's going to give you a sense of just how dramatic that is. Can we just use one quick example? Again, talk about the gorilla in the living room. Abortion, ladies and gentlemen, you don't need me to tell you, is legal. That is an astounding thing to have to say about the civil society in which you live. Every now and then, I think in my own mind, the way that we so easily look back on the Germans at the time of Hitler, and we find ourselves so easily saying, how could they have dot, dot, dot? Ladies and gentlemen, how can we dot, dot, dot? Within blocks of here, innocent people are being butchered day in and day out. And we go our merry way in many ways, don't we? I'm as guilty as the next. I'm not telling you what I think the solution to that is other than this. I'm convinced I'm not taking that nearly seriously enough. I go on from political involvement and offer a couple thoughts on economics. Here's a crucial, though perhaps less obvious, area in which we must be different. I think we're very used to having to be different as regards certain things. I think this is often the Trojan horse, the place where we don't think we necessarily have to be that different. The way we seek to provide what is needed for our households is a moral project. It must be formed in view of fundamental aspects of our worldview, we should expect that our approach to economics will be fundamentally different from that of our society. And I speak for myself when I throw this to you as a challenge. I think we Catholics are not serious enough about this. I think we just go right along often with the main flow of our economy, not saying to ourselves, how do we need to stop and stand up and say how we do things economically must be different. Would you take a peek at quotation number seven from Pope Benedict XVI? We jump right in the middle. This is Caritas in Veritate, which is very much a social encyclical. This requires, this is his italics, further and deeper reflection on the meaning of the economy and its goals, as well as a profound and far-sighted revision of the current model of development so as to correct its dysfunctions and deviations. This is demanded, in any case, by the Earth's state of ecological health, 
Above all, it is required by the cultural and moral crisis of man, the symptoms of which have been evident for some time all over the world. I think sometimes, if I may say it, we Americans can be particularly deaf to this. The popes have been saying again and again how we do economics has to change. It has to be different, and I don't think that we're hearing that. And I think we just make our shopping list, and we go down to Walmart, and we just buy everything we need, and we just go back home, and we don't think about it. Because economic times tend to be tough. But I'm about to show you, Pope John Paul II says, when you make your list and you go to Walmart, you need to be taking with you your values. Let's go ahead and take a little peek here. John Paul II hammers at this, that in our economic decisions, there need to be larger principles at work. Number eight, a given culture reveals its overall understanding of life through the choices it makes in production and consumption. It is here that the phenomenon of consumerism arises. Right, so John Paul II, his key term, consumerism, sees it as a major evil of the modern age, and just for the sake of our communal self-reflection and examination of conscience, I dare say, what country do you think he most had in mind when he used the word consumerism? <laughs> Though he never would have said that. He's too much of a gentleman. It's here that the phenomenon of consumerism arises. In singling out new needs and new means to meet them, one must be guided by a comprehensive picture of man which respects all the dimensions of his being and which subordinates his material and instinctive dimensions to his interior and spiritual ones in economic decisions. It goes on, if on the contrary, a direct appeal is made to his instincts. Right now, I hope almost every commercial that we ever see brought before us, whether on billboard, radio, or television, I read on. If on the contrary, a direct appeal is made to his instincts while ignoring in various ways the reality of the person as intelligent and free, then consumer attitudes and lifestyles can be created, which are objectively improper and often damaging to his physical and spiritual health. Of itself, an economic system does not possess criteria for correctly distinguishing new and higher forms of satisfying human needs from artificial new needs. Artificial new needs. Great line. Which hinder the formation of a mature personality. His italics. Thus, a great deal of educational and cultural work is urgently needed. I go right into this. is Centesimus Honest, his great social encyclical. Going to number nine. It's not wrong to want to live better. What is wrong is a style of life which is presumed to be better when it's directed towards having rather than being, and which wants to have more, not in order to be more, but in order to spend life in enjoyment as an end in itself. Look at this next line. It's therefore necessary to create lifestyles in which the quest for truth, beauty, goodness, and communion with others for the sake of common growth are the factors which determine consumer choices, savings, and investments. I don't think we can read that line enough. So I'll read it one more time. It's therefore necessary to create lifestyles in which the quest for truth, beauty, goodness, and communion with others for the sake of common growth. I mean, there, it's just ringing out our whole thing of we are made to live in community, in families, in parishes, in a nation where the main thing is a kind of communion with others on a spiritual level of seeking truth and virtue together, spiritual goods. Those are the factors which determine consumer choices, savings, and investments. I'm referring to the, and he goes on and says, I'm referring to the fact that even the decision to invest in one place rather than another 
in one productive sector rather than another is always a moral and cultural choice. Those are profoundly challenging words. How seriously do we take that when we look at our retirement portfolio? Do we let our portfolio be determined by professionals whose only 99 out of 100 times criterion is what's going to give the biggest return? Should we be determining where we invest simply by what brings the biggest return? He's saying that quest for truth, beauty, and goodness in communion determines consumer choices, savings, and investments. All right, so that's a whole other area for our further consideration. I'd like to just give one more and conclude. I think that we need to be prepared to make judgments about fundamental aspects of the lifestyle, I use that in a broad sense, habits of living in our society that are contrary to our living in communion with others. I'm going to read you quotation number 11, again from Pope John Paul II. A man is alienated if he refuses to transcend himself and live the experience of self-giving and of the formation of an authentic human community oriented towards his final destiny, which is God. Here's the key line. A society is alienated if its forms of social organization, production, and consumption make it more difficult to offer this gift of self and to establish solidarity between people. He's painting a picture for us. Let's bring this down to very concrete, simple, if we can. Many aspects of social organization make it more difficult for us to offer the gift of self and establish solidarity between people. So we need to have our eyes peeled, ladies and gentlemen, for what aspects of common habits of how people live in society around us that will make it harder for us to truly live in communion with other people. I like to give one simple example. Maybe it's an easy target, but I think it's also an extremely challenging target, and that is communication technology. Here's my assertion to you, ladies and gentlemen. Common habits of utilizing communication technology are destroying the ability of a generation to live in communion with people, period. And we're all standing by. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm around youth all the time. For God's sake, they don't know how to talk to people. And they're going like this all day long. And we shrug our shoulders and we get them ourselves and we get intrigued with them and we go our merry way. These people can't live in human communion. How can they get married and have children and really be members of a parish if they don't know how to live in the presence of persons? <laughs> Truly, I give you that challenge. Right now, you might be thinking, okay, well, now what do I do? <laughs> I don't have any answer. All I'm saying is, well, I, that was too broad. I have some answer. I was given that as an area, communication technology, common habits of a society that make it more difficult to offer the gift of self and establish solidarity between people. 
He uses the example of drugs. He uses very obvious examples. I'm pointing out something that's not intrinsically evil, but certain habits that we form, given the technology that's become dominant, that I think we need to look at. That's just a suggestion. I wrap up with a word on authority. I am convinced that authority is a central reflection sign of God's love for us. True authority, you're looking God in the eyes when you see real authority. Real authority is the hallmark of fatherhood. Fatherhood, real authority, is at the foundation of any community, ladies and gentlemen, the community that we've talked about, that we're all designed for, never works. No community ever works without real authority. Think of any of them. A parish, a civil society, the church, the family needs an authority, that amazing thing where persons stand and in love, in courage, give their lives, exercising that authority for those that they love. What an amazing and beautiful instance real fatherhood is. That man, may I use that example, in a woman too, participates in that. May I just speak of that man who looks at his wife and he gives himself completely to her and he looks at the children and he says, my life is fundamentally about your good, even if it kills me. And ladies and gentlemen, I dare say we can look at the society we're in and wonder, where is the fatherhood? And if there's not fatherhood, there can't be real community, because communities always come together where there is that loving authority. So this is extremely challenging. I give you the quotation from Yves Simon here to conclude. He wrote this when he was giving the example of an officer who was told to hold a position no matter what as part of the larger plan. What happens, though, when his superior officers get wiped out and he and his regiment are left there and they no longer have the authority above them that they needed to have? He says the following lines. When the private person has to emerge above his capacity and substitute for non-existent public persons, an awe-inspiring solitude makes him realize that the structure of society has broken down. This can be taken analogously when we realize the authority is not there, whether it's of our father, whether it's in the parish, whether it's in civil society, wherever it is. It can be overwhelming when that authority is not there. What can we do? We, as any good soldier, are called to be faithful. We're not necessarily called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. We step up. We exercise what authority we have with love and courage and our community still can flourish, and we can live together in love with those that are most important to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback, for uh, synthesizing what was, for me, a semester-long course <laughs> into one hour. I appreciate it. And you didn't miss any of it. If you had just given that to us, that would have been great. I could have passed <laughs> I could have passed my final. I think I could have passed my final.
We'll take a short break and uh, come back together for question and answer. Thank you, Dr. Cotterback, for coming again. Today, where can the average American male go to in order to find a positive fatherhood role model? The Bible and Adam, no. His progeny, no. Andy of Mayberry, the father role of Lauren Green in Ponderosa, the sheriff of Dodge City in Gunsmoke, no, none of these places. In a divorced society, a broken society where the males have already been kicked out of the nest with no love, I mean, they're searching too. And no amount of love from a wife or a mother can fill it. We've tried. That is a great question. Honestly, I think in certain ways we all have either wanted to or have asked God that question. And I think first, his answer has got to be turned to me, for I am Father. The source of all fatherhood has got to be the answer. Talk about an opportunity to realize that we have failed and that we cannot do it, especially we men, have got to turn back to God and say even if we haven't had the role models that we would have wanted, that we turn to you, Lord, show us your fatherhood. How could he not answer that prayer? So fundamentally, that we have to go to the source with confidence. He will show us. And we need to also be looking, and we need to try. There are fathers in literature, there are fathers in the Bible, and I would be remiss to not say, the great silent one, Saint Joseph. Saint Joseph. We fathers can learn so much. Talk about a man of love and strength that made the whole thing possible. Without Saint Joseph, there is no salvation. The Blessed Mother does not do what she did. Jesus doesn't do what he did without the man he called Daddy. So he's a fabulous example that I'm confident that Jesus would have had us turn to even though he doesn't say anything. A question coming in online. Jacques Maritain wrote that the subject of a right is the individual. If this is true, can it be said that groups or collectives, as it were, have rights? That's a tough philosophical question, even exactly what a right is, is philosophically debated. Yes, the Holy Father has spoken of rights of the family, and so I, I think that the term can be properly used. At times, even in canon law, we refer to juridical persons. A community can be a kind of juridical person. So it is uh, something to reasonably to be spoken of. The family has certain rights, and particularly in this day and age, that I think is a key example of what you're, of, I think probably what this questioner is, is, is thinking of, even though it, the prime analogous would always be going back to a person in the sense of the substance. That would be the main locus of a right, and it would be by a kind of extension. I say that under correction, but that would be my thought. The Boy Scouts of America, uh, boys that are involved in Boy Scouts of America, take an oath to God to be clean, to be morally straight. The Boy Scouts has changed their policy to allow 
um, open, avowed homosexual boys be a part of the Scouts. What responsibilities do we adults that are actively involved as adult leaders and Scouts and their sons have to that community? Um, that's a great question. I don't think I'll be able to sufficiently answer that. Um, I think that can depend very much upon the contingent situation. You ask the right questions, what do we owe? I think it's appropriate that you don't necessarily immediately think in terms of, boop, I'm out of here. You know, boop, that, that's a big mistake and it's a very big mistake. Therefore, I'm just simply gone, although you might need to make that judgment. Is there still a way that you can stay involved and say in this group that we're able to do certain things? But is there a possibility of staying within and still trying to do certain good things? It seems to me that shouldn't be beyond the pale. Can I still work together with the others? That's what we call a prudential decision. If it seems that things have gotten to the point where I can't do what needs to be done under this framework, then you have the very difficult choice, perhaps, then is the, most, is the best one to be made, that you go and you do something else. It is right to ask, do we still owe something here? And what might we need to do along those lines? But you also have to bear in mind that you might not really be able to offer that in that context unless you need to go. That's my quick thought. Given the seriousness of the situation, say, in our civil society, I'm wondering where you see hope outside of, say, Front Royal in, <laughs> you know, and, and sort of our Catholic ghettos, right? But if it's in our nature to be a part of civil society, then that's written on our hearts, and it should be seen somewhere in the greater society. The, as we were reading these quotes, I thought immediately of our fascination with the Spartans at Thermopylae, or even the Avengers that just came out, like these, these ideas of communities that will serve the greater good, the, great, the good that's greater than themselves. It seems to be peeking out, and I'm wondering where you see hope. I would start by saying I think that it's fair to judge. We've come to a point where in God's providence we need to see that we cannot do it without him. We are at a very, very, very dark time. And just as I wrote, once read a great reflection on how the Blessed Mother had to deal with this key aspect of spiritual life, the loss in the temple, she didn't understand what was going on. Why would God do this? It doesn't seem to make any sense. You've given us the natural desire to have this. Why? Why, O oh Lord? But as long as man has been man, there, in varying degrees, I think now it's particularly bad, if not the worst, but there's always been good reasons. Why, O oh Lord? So, our hope, again, is in the name of the Lord. It has to be in turning back to Him. Isn't it interesting that Pope John Paul II, blessed, referred to the springtime in the church. He wasn't blind to how horrific things were, but he has a sense of the transcendent power of God that even then, He will be faithful and good things will happen. It is very difficult for me to point specifically to things other than things that are on a very small scale. Very small scale, but let me read you the one line from Aristotle, the quotation that I didn't read you. Isn't this a remarkable line where he says, you mentioned the Spartans, he mentions the Spartans. In the Spartan state alone, or almost alone, the legislator seems to have paid attention to questions of nurture and occupations. He was around a lot of bad states. In most states, such matters have been neglected, and each man lives as he pleases. Goes on. Now it is best that there should be a public and proper care for such matters. That's the way it's supposed to be, says Aristotle. But if they are neglected by the community, listen to this, isn't this practical? It would seem right for each man to help his children and his friends towards virtue and that they should have the power, at least the will, to do this. 
this is perfect. Lord, in any case, grant me the strength to be faithful to my spouse, my children, my friends, and my parish. There are lots of people, like the people in this room, that are praying that and asking that, and that prayer will be heard. How, we don't know. What form, we don't know. But God is going to answer that prayer, and there's going to be a springtime somehow. Thanks, Doctor, for the explanation of community, because I really never understood that completely. But in regards to the different communities we have, we have family, the society, and church, to be in a community, what's the role of civil disobedience then? You know, for a rightful or good thing, is that, is that something that you can discuss or, or mention? I, I can, but with apologies that such an important question won't demand much more. But I'd say, again, my students hate it when I say this. In any case, you're asking the right question, even if I don't have the answer that you want. Civil disobedience is going to, I think, be a very real part of our lives. There's not a simple way that I have to express to you exactly when it's justified. But obviously, when fundamental aspects of the moral order are being communally rejected by our society, it is absolutely time to be very ready, in any case, to pull the lever of civil disobedience. But it always has to be under the principle of, for the common good, this I think you will find helpful. We don't immediately break into civil disobedience if there is no chance that it is going to have any good effect. Now, how you judge that, how you measure that is a very difficult thing. So, for instance, I might at times think, why don't I just walk into an abortion clinic and just do something to make things stop, even just for that day, and maybe that would save a few lives. Wouldn't that just be worthwhile my doing? Well, okay, let's say I'm thrown in jail. My children have to be raised without me. I have to look at that situation. But I say it is asking the right question. When will we get more radical about saying we've got to step outside the bounds and look at what reasonably can be done? But we still have to be prudent. Prudent doesn't mean cowardly, but it would be imprudent for me to go do something as a father raising young children that would get myself put in jail for a very long time and wouldn't be fundamentally changing the social order. So we need to be savvy also. What kind of disobedience, what kind of radical things stand a better chance of succeeding? I think that's where we need to be asking that question and looking together, deliberating. At what point are we going to say no? And I'm telling you with this whole um, HHS mandate, we are on the cusp of where brave men will simply say, no, no, not I. And at that point, it might well be the case that even fathers have to go to jail. I'm not saying fathers should never do something to go to jail. Goodness, no. Sometimes we will be called even if it does leave our children at home. We might have to go to jail in certain circumstances. If, for instance, I am commanded to do something evil. See, it's, it's different. I, at this point, might not say, I'm going to go into an abortion clinic and take a proactive, I've got to stop this right now. No. But if I'm told, you perform this intrinsically evil act, no, I will not. That would be what's called consequentialism or proportionalism, to say, oh, well, no, the bad effect is going to be so great, so I can just break the moral law. No, we cannot break the moral law, even if the consequences are serious. So that's what I'm saying. It's coming where we have to be ready to take very serious consequences and disobey. That's just a little snapshot. Again, Let's talk about it as a community. Let's ask our leaders to help us discern those things and be ready to lead us in it. Thank you very much, Dr. Kutterbeck.
Just a, a concluding remark for the evening that I want you to walk away with. You had mentioned about Front Royal and, what did you say, a Catholic, Catholic ghetto. Yeah, and we'd received a message on, it's okay, it's okay, I don't mind it. We'd received a, a question from Massachusetts, how do we restore our families when they have broken down? And maybe this wasn't what the guy was asking, but I think Dr. Cutterback would agree with me that our families, my children, can never, and I will never allow them to be the battleground of this fight. I need to step out in front of my family to represent my family. But my children will not be the battleground. That's what the secularists want. They want to step into my family and make my children the battleground. So that it's them or me and my children are in the middle. That can never happen. I will never let it happen. So to talk about the Catholic ghetto... I do believe, and I think this is where we can take what Dr. Cutterback has given us this evening, it's very easy to talk in large terms about being arrested or whatever it is on a larger scale. But as a matter of fact, on a day-to-day -day basis, we have to make a decision as Catholics of how we're going to live our lives in our homes. If you want to call it a Catholic ghetto, you can call it a Catholic ghetto. I call it a Catholic home where my children are nurtured and they're brought up as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And when they grow up, when they're able to engage in the battle, they will have the tools to do so. But I do believe, my friends, that we're working on, a, on this larger scale that doesn't ever really touch us while we leave our homes to decay. It's first our home, and only then can we go out into the larger society to make a difference. Let us make for ourselves at home a Catholic home, a home of prayer, a home where our children and grandchildren are not the playing field of the secularists. We're the battleground, if you will. Let it be there where they can be nurtured and brought up as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, empowered then to engage society as true Christians. But if we leave our homes in decay, then our fight out there is always going to end in the worst destruction. Let's fix our homes and get them healthy. I've said this many times, getting out the television, getting the newspapers out of there, not for my children, not right now. When I leave home, when I leave home, I check the news, I do, because it's my job as the father of my family to be out there at the forefront, to know what battle is coming. But when I go back home, it's there that we're reading the scriptures, that we're singing the hymns of the church together, we're praying together. We're getting my children strong because there is a battle coming. And yes, there may be martyrdoms coming. I want my children to be able to enter into that, engage in that, and to be able to win that fight with Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference for tonight. Those that walk away and say that was an enjoyable talk and those that walk away and say I'm going to do something about it. Okay? God bless you. Thank you for coming out this evening. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.